Yo, yo, what's up, everyone? Pete Forsey, the podcast, episode eight, coming at you a little bit early here this week. Got a couple of reasons for why that is. Chief among them, unfortunately, I have to travel down to Texas here tomorrow. I uh, I lost a friend a couple weeks ago. Uh, I got to pay my respects to him and uh, his family. And it, logistically, it's just easier for me to record here now on Wednesday. I'm sure you're listening to this here on Thursday. That's when I plan to deliver it to you. So hopefully uh, you enjoy this a little earlier than you normally would. Uh, but then also, secondly, we got a lot of great news already. We got the combine going on. Uh, the Arizona Cardinals just gave us a great headline. We got Bryce Harper, things heating up in his corner. We got new teams entering the fray. Baseball is looking at some big-time changes to their game. And then lastly, what I'm going to talk about as well uh, is Antonio Brown and something that I'm noticing and how it relates to society and how we think as consumers and also media members, how it relates to that. So hope you enjoy episode eight coming at you early, tackling some some things earlier on in the week that I'm not hopefully late on in the other podcast. But I hope you enjoy it. Episode eight of the podcast. Thanks for listening. Okay, so it's obviously combine week. And that's going to go through Sunday. And there could be some bigger stories that come out of that. I know that what I'm most interested in and what I was most interested in before now was uh, what is Kyler Murray's height? What's he going to measure up at? Because there's discrepancies depending on who you're listening to and which reports you're looking at. It could be as short as 5'8". It could be 6 feet. It's just you you don't really know. And we're going to find out at the combine. GMs are going to size him up. We're going to have a much better idea on who's in and who's out on him. But so far, and I record this again on Wednesday, we already have a big story and nothing may top it. And that's general manager Steve Keim of the Arizona Cardinals has left the door open to a possibility at a switch at quarterback. He says that Josh Rosen is the quarterback, quote, for now. And I got to tell you, when I heard this this morning, I was just kind of like bewildered a little bit. I was like, whoa. Like, really, they're going to move on from Rosen? Like, they like Kyler that much? Like, and I started in my head just racing around thinking of reasons of, like, why I prefer Rosen over a Kyler. And then I got to thinking, I was like, whoa, Pete, you're just not even considering what this may very well be. And that's just a ploy by Steve Kime to extract extra value over the number one pick. I totally forgot that we're talking about number one overall here. I forgot that for, you know, a brief second there. So I started thinking about it. And that's very well what this could be. For anyone, they're putting people on notice. Anyone who may be very badly wanting Kyler Murray, they're saying, hey, you know, we might take him. If you do, come get him. And if that's the case, if they really are truly in on Rosen, and they could have had a discussion with him, they could have said, hey, Josh, we're fully behind you, but just know we're going to plant some stuff out there. Don't worry anything about it. It's only to you know, move in a better direction, fast-track the franchise by acquiring more capital, more resources. So that's very well it could be. But at the same time, if there's a coach that could really suit well towards Kyler Murray, it's someone like Cliff Kingsbury, who ran a very college offense at Texas Tech and who has managed games at that level. So could be smoke, could be not. I'm really just on the fence. I don't know. But let's look at it from a position of, If they are interested in Kyler Murray, what does that mean for Josh Rosen? Well, I started bouncing around ideas, and I was thinking, man, this guy's going to have a lot of suitors. Like, a lot of teams are going to be wanting this guy. This is a good draft prospect. I thought he was the best quarterback in the 2018 draft 
last April. I thought the Browns should have taken him number one overall if they were going to use a pick on a quarterback there. I thought he was the best best prospect, most polished, one of the higher ceilings, maybe not the highest. I thought Josh Allen obviously had the highest ceiling. I don't think he's going to reach it. But I thought he was the one that should have been taken overall by the Browns if they are going to take a quarterback, which they did. They took Mayfield. Doesn't seem to be a mistake. Mayfield has surpassed what I thought um, were big obstacles for him. He's already done that in year one. However, Josh Rosen is still very viable. Arizona was just a complete, like that's, I'm giving him a huge pass on last year. He was put in a Jared Goff 2016 type of situation. Remember that 2016 Rams team? Yeah, very forgettable with names, but there's no way Goff would have succeeded on that team. That's kind of how I see it with Josh Rosen. Steve Wilkes was in over his head. I think he's a good coach, but he was probably pushed a little too soon to become a head coach, and now they're moving uh, in a different direction from a managerial side. So, with Josh Rosen, I was looking at it, and I'm thinking, you know, if you want to get him out of the conference, because people are always reluctant to trade a quarterback in conference who could potentially beat you for years to come, and, you know, surely Kime is considering that, but it's not a no-fly zone. If I'm looking at AFC teams first, I count seven that are going to be in on him. Seven. And I think probably the ones that are going to be most pressing, that are going to be eager to get him, are some of the same that we talked last week, but also more. I count, in no particular order, I count the Broncos, Dolphins, Bengals, Titans as teams that would surely line up very soon to go get him. Broncos, they just got Flacco. Again, that's just a stopgap situation. Shouldn't preclude any plans that they have. If they don't think that they're, if they don't like Kyler Murray, which obviously under this scenario the Cardinals take him, he, Josh Rosen is better than any other prospect in this draft. The Broncos should go and get him. The Dolphins, they're obviously going to lose out on Murray as well. They should go and get him. Bengals, I think Zach Taylor would be eager to upgrade over Andy Dalton. Big Dalton guy here. I really think that he has some good redeeming qualities. However, he's average. And average, I always say, you hug him tight, you keep him, you pay them, but you always keep an eye on if there is a better option out there. This is that time. That would also include the Titans. Marcus Mariota, very average. And also, it's time to pay him. It's time to consider contracts. I think if you can go out and get Josh Rosen, get him, move on from Marcus Mariota. The next four, Patriots, Steelers, Chargers. Those are all teams that are looking for succession plans. And I know I just came off a podcast where I said you don't want to have two starting quarterbacks. So some of you may be wondering about that. The reason this is different is that these guys are older and they're all playing at an elite level still. So you really wouldn't have a situation where the backup is, you know, potentially better or the better option on that team at that given moment. Now, the Patriots, Steelers, and Chargers all could have guys that start to decline. And the thing about it is, in this particular case that is special for all these teams, is that when you're old and your play starts to decline, it's usually sharp and it's usually fast. So if you have a quarterback of Rosen's caliber, first-round pick, high-end talent, probably has a floor of good, a ceiling of elite, if you're asking me, then it's no question who should be playing. If Roethlisberger starts to play poorly, it's usually going to be pretty bad because his physical skills start to diminish. So in that situation, I would have no problem lining up a succession plan for either of those teams. And then the last teams, the Giants obviously need a quarterback. I only, I'm not putting them on you know, the back seat to everyone in the AFC necessarily, but I just mean that you know you don't want to trade a quarterback in conference if it means potentially losing out 
um, on their stellar play for years to come. And then the other two that I think are unique circumstances and you just don't know what they're thinking are the Redskins or the Panthers thinking about going different directions. Cam, is he going to be healthy enough to play at all during the season? He could potentially sit out the entire year. Same with Alex Smith. Alex Smith and his contract, I'm not entirely sure, sure on how that works, but I'm pretty sure you have to continue to pay him unless they recoup insurance if he's on a physically unable to perform list or if a doctor says he cannot continue his career. So I'd like to know a little bit more on what his health status is, how that progresses, and what the Washington Redskins are thinking. Same with the Carolina Panthers. I see them as potential options if they want to remodel their offense um, and also what is going on with Cam. But Rosen obviously is a fit for any team because I think he's going to be a great player for years to come. Again, I think he could reach Matt Ryan status with when you look at Matt Ryan, when he's got an offensive coordinator, when he's got a team around him on offense, he can reach elite level status with his play on a game-to-game basis. And then I think at worst, you're looking at a guy who really manages an offense, gets you some a lot of wins, and really plays on what I like to term a good level. Josh Rosen will have plenty of suitors if the Cardinals go in the Kyler Murray direction. Hard to tell what they're thinking, but they have left the door open to go either way. Kyler Murray or Josh Rosen, I would go Rosen, but if not, he's going to have plenty of teams looking at him for the 2019 season. Okay, I forgot to touch on Bryce Harper last week. I pretty much just talked about Manny Machado, and then I got into the Padres and how fascinated I am with their organization, and uh, I'm probably on an island of one there. But I didn't talk about Bryce Harper, and I didn't talk about the implications about how Machado and that affects uh, his free agency going forward. Well, as I talked about in previous podcasts, I thought it would have a trickle-down effect once Machado signs, and that appears to be so. Bryce Harper now has the Los Angeles Dodgers and the San Francisco Giants as heavy suitors. They appear to be the top two as we sit here today. The Philadelphia Phillies? Sounds like Bryce doesn't want to be a Philly. That's what a lot of reports are saying. They're saying Kapler and him probably aren't a fit, or at least that's in Bryce's eyes. He seems to think that Kapler's a little bit kooky, which he is. And Philadelphia, unless they just give him an insurmountable uh, amount of money, money that he cannot refuse, uh, doesn't look like he's going to be a Philly. Looks like Bryce has put teams on notice, or not put on notice, but the teams on the West Coast have got his attention. He wants to be on the West Coast close to Las Vegas, where he is from. Now, Nationals are out. They're just not going to pay him. I don't think, unless there's some type of discount or some type of huge sacrifice on Bryce's part, he's not going to be returning to Washington. So I look at this as Dodgers and Giants. And as I sit here now, I really think the Giants might get him. I, I really do. And some people, that, that was hard to really believe just a few weeks ago, even just last week. But they're they're kind of looking at this in probably a very progressive way, if you ask me. And that's despite the fact that they have high payroll, they got some contracts that they wish they didn't. They're looking at this as a unique situation and saying, even though the timing's not perfect, the, the option, Bryce Harper, 26 years old, definitely Hall of Fame level talent, these don't come around too often. And if there was a time to give out a 10-year contract, or when there is a time to give out a 10-year contract, you always operate under the thought that Bryce Harper could be part of this team in 2019 that could catch fire and make a run, or they could be awful, 
and then in a few years, the Giants franchise could be good, and then they could be awful again. you got to remember how long 10 years is. Think about how much can change in just three years, four years. Look at the New York Mets. 2015 World Series. 2016 Wild Card Game. And then 17 and 18, the wheels fell off. But now we're looking at the Mets again with a lot of the same players, but some changes on the supplement side. We're looking at them as potentially, you know, playoff. Playoff caliber. So a lot can change all the time year to year, but certainly in a three to four year span. So if you sign a guy up for 10 years, it's okay because you could be looking at the direction of the franchise in a lot of different ways. I like that the Giants are doing that. I think that they can offer Bryce what he's ultimately wanting, which is he wants to set some records, and maybe that's Boris, but their camp I talk to or I speak on, uh, namely, I think he'll get the 10 years, and I think he'll get the highest AAV. 326, 10-year, also breaks the largest contract ever and the largest free agent contract ever. He'll top Giancarlo at 10-year, 325. He'll get the highest AAV for a position player ever and also the highest in free agency. It just depends on the opt-outs, I think. And the opt-outs might not be a problem with the Giants because if they're where they are where they are, with the contracts of Samarja, Cueto, Brandon Belt, who's still an effective player but is signed long-term. You got Brandon Crawford, too. You know, ultimately, if Bryce wants to opt out, it might be good for both parties. So they can give him the three- to five-year option to opt out, whether it's after year three, after year four, year five, which would hit him at 29, 30, or 31 years of age. Then they seem like the best suitors because – the Dodgers don't seem to want to go in long-term length. They don't seem to want to go to decade long. They may not even want to go nine or eight. They are labeled as short-term suitors. And short-term, that depends on who you talk to. In my opinion, anything over three years is a long-term contract. But, I mean, we're, we're talking semantics here. And I don't know why Bryce Harper would sign up for anything in the five-year range, even if it were for the Dodgers. Like, there's no reason for him to do that. So I really look at the Giants as the driver's seat here. I think it would fit perfectly. They need offense. The Giants team, while they have some older guys that have been injured, they are capable of catching fire and having a great year. You look at the 2015 Yankees. Alex Rodriguez came back, had an awesome year. He was hitting in their three-hole by the end of the year. Mark Teixeira stayed on the field for the majority of the year, and they made the playoffs. They made the wild card game. Of course, got... Uh, you know, they were eliminated by Dallas Keuchel and the Astros. But it is possible with these larger payroll teams who have guys on the, you know, twilight of their careers, it is possible if things come together at the right time to play well. The Giants have that for the next few years. Maybe Bryce signs up for it. I think they also can offer him the 10-year record-breaking deal that he wants. We'll see what happens here moving forward. So sticking with baseball, um, there's been a lot of talk about the MLB and the union, the Players Association, having to come to a compromise on a lot of things. It seems to be really just like a standoff. No one's really willing to change. The MLB has been very active in putting proposals in front of the union and saying, let's change this, namely among them, pitch clock, a, uh, a ceiling or a minimum number of batters that relief pitchers have to to face all the way down to changing roster sizes to um, 
to dismiss and eliminate manipulation of the injured list, as it's uh, now known as. So a lot of those things, mostly I will just say I hate all of them. There's some of them that I care don't care less about, or excuse me, I, I don't mind, like the 26th man if you're going to increase the roster sizes, and then if you create a active-slash-inactive list when it comes to September. Those I'm fine with, but when you mess with the fabric of the game, when you put a clock on the pitcher, when you put a minimum number of batters that they have to face, um, I don't like that necessarily. The ones that I'm okay with is designating players as either position or pitcher, and then you know, not allowing some position players to pitch after a certain point. Um, that's stuff I'm okay with, but it's kind of the fabric of the game that I really don't like that you mess with. Now, I know I may initially sound just like one of the players who doesn't want anything to change, but I am here to discuss potential changes because while baseball is in a fine spot, I think that really it's been grossly overrated just how bad of a path baseball is down. I know that their fans are older than the fans of, say, the NFL or the NBA. But when you look at some of the polls that have been out there, some of the surveys that say the average MLB fan is like 55 years old, well, that tells me that things are not headed in the right direction and you need to change them. But it's not like there's not a huge sense of urgency here. Okay? Like ba- people say baseball is dying. Well, guess what? Every sport is dying. Okay, I I had one friend put it to me. He said, yeah, soon we're not even going to be watching sports. At some point, we may be watching robots. We might be watching robots destroy each other. We won't even be enamored with the physical capabilities of humans. We'll be wanting to know which robot can destroy another. That's what it could be, you know, years and years down the line. But getting into baseball, I don't think it's that big of a deal. It's not that pressing when your average fan is 55 years old. Because you know what? People are living longer than ever. Okay? That's, you know, if someone dies at 75, that's 20 more years baseball has of their biggest interest, of the masses of the people that watch them. So I think we're okay. But at the same time, I'm not sticking my head in the sand. I know things have to change. And here are some of the things that I think should change in baseball. To attract more fans, attract younger fans, to put more a better entertainment product. I understand that the sacrifice of some of the nuances and the brand of play and some of the fabric will have to change. And here's what I have to propose. I think as a compromise, both the union and MLB, they should ban defensive shifts. Now, we're from a time where there's been shifting in baseball dating all the way back till probably the beginning of time. You've had infielders, you've had outfielders, shade different directions. But we've reached the point now where we have Howie Kendrick of the Dodgers. He transitioned to the outfield. And part of the reason he transitioned to the outfield is because he's a great athlete. He played second base for the Angels for all those years. But also because the Dodgers front office had him with a note card telling him exactly where to stand in Dodger Stadium outfield. Like it's we've reached the point we know where the ball's going. I want MLB and the new union to explore illegal defense. I think it's okay. I think it's okay to say you can only have X amount of players on one side of second base, or you can only have the outfielder shaded to a measurement uh, or a angle of X degree, and if not, you get suspended. You can't have players stand in there, and that's illegal defense, 
It, it'll be hard for the umpires to police it in the outfield uh, on a play-to-play -play basis. But on the infield, it should be, you know, no problem. And then if it is a problem other way, otherwise, you suspend guys and you suspend teams taking away draft picks potentially. I, I'm okay with exploring illegal defense in baseball. I think that would put more offense in the game and the Brian McCanns of the world. They won't have singles taken away and they'll be able to uh, keep jobs. The second one, and this is the first time you'll hear me backpedal on this podcast. I think maybe there should be a DH in the NL. I almost threw up saying that. I don't want it, but I think this is probably what it, you know, this is what it's going to take. People, the masses want offense. They're not interested in the things that I'm interested in or probably, you know, the 60-year-olds the watching the game. They don't care about bunning. They don't care about double switches, how a manager was thinking about this before that happened. I get it. You'll be creating jobs for the over-the-hill guys that can only hit and just bring power and will walk occasionally. You'll be keeping them in the game, and you'll be eliminating some of the stuff that isn't really sexy, appealing to the eye. So while I don't want it for the sake of the game, for the health of the game, probably time to have a DH in the NL. Now shifting into the gears of something that the union will get and then something that the PA uh, or excuse me, something that uh, the league will get, the MLB in the front office. I think that it's time that in free agency, for the players' sake, we put a deadline for the owners and their teams. I say that there should be a deadline for if you want to sign a free agent at a contract of X amount of dollars. And if we're going to put a number on it, I think that 25 would be good. For a total value of $25 million, there should be a deadline in, say, mid-January. If you want to sign a player for more than the total value of $25 million, you got to do it before January. Otherwise, you get a tax, much like the luxury tax. Um, I don't have all the you know inner workings worked out, but something sort of like the luxury tax where maybe it's dollar for dollar. Um, you get taxed after that date. And what this would do, it was the guys that would command big dollars. They would know their teams. It would force the hand of the owners and the front office executives to create urgency and then also the middle class and the lower end guys who sign for money, it would not hurt them at all because, uh, you know, you would be taking a lot. Teams would not be disincentivized to uh, sign those players and they would remain uh, on the clubs and the teams and the contracts that they normally would have. It wouldn't affect them. So I think that's a good thing for the player's sake. Uh, you'll see the teams create urgency earlier and maybe even overpay depending on market demand and supply. And then for the league, we talk about pace, we talk about play, speeding up the game. I think it's just time to ban timeouts. And I mean mound visits. I also mean in between with the on-deck batter to uh, its dugouts. I also think just base runners in general in between, um, in between breaks, like when there's a relief pitcher coming in. Um, and the relief pitcher himself. I think that maybe he should just have three warm-up pitches or no warm-up pitches. Just ban it. I think it's time to cut out the dead time completely. No more mound visits. And that's coming from a guy who, you know, I was a pitcher when I played, and anyone that, that has played the game understand the importance of being able to communicate with a catcher specifically or even just other players. You know, communication is key in the game. However, 
this would be an adjustment. This would be something for the league where you say, hey, you got to figure out a series of hand signals to communicate, and that's it. Um, it would be basically putting a clock on without a clock, um, and I think that's the best solution there. No timeouts of any kind. And no relief pitchers, you come into the game and you go. Maybe you get two warm-up pitches, but that's it. Enough with this in, you know, batter's box going down to third base coach to talk to him about whether it's a bunt or it's it's not. No more. You can't do that. You stay in the box and you go. I think that's what would be great for baseball. I don't want wholesale changes yet. I just want some minor tweaks. Baseball is not headed down the best path, but it's not pressing at the moment. I think you just need to tweak some things, reevaluate, ban defensive shifts, get the DH and the NL, I guess, and let's see where we are a few years down the line. Okay, switching gears back over to football, I'm going to talk about Antonio Brown and the Pittsburgh Steelers breakup a little bit. Not specifics on a, how each went about it. Um, not specifically who's going to land Antonio Brown. There's plenty of suitors. Every team could use someone of his caliber, um, but it's going to take unique situation of who, you know, who can manage him, um, what they're willing to take on, and, and of course money. You know, Panthers are definitely an option. I think San Francisco definitely an option. Uh, but there's many more depending on, you know, the adjustments and resources and things of that nature. But what I want to talk about is kind of really how this whole situation epitomizes players and their thought process and also just society and how we view things. I really think this is a great example of player empowerment. And it's kind of already be, already been pointed out. I know some people have pointed to the fact that he's going to be on the shop uh or is it the chop? The shop of LeBron James' new show. It aired over the summer uh, for its premiere, and it's gained a lot of attention. It's on HBO. And uh, also, he was hanging out with LeBron in his camp, and some people are kind of surmising here that maybe LeBron and those people that he was talking to there said, hey, take the NBA approach, the player empowerment approach, and say, I am the product, you answer to me. And, you know, that's a very solid theory, and I think, you know, when you look at the timeline of everything, that's pretty much what is happening here. Uh, Antonio Brown decided not to talk to ownership. He decided to do his work through social media um, and made very clear his desires and what he wanted to happen and what he thought about his time in Pittsburgh, uh, specifically pointing out his relationship with his quarterback. So I think that is kind of what's happened here, and I think this really is just an embodiment of – kind of how we view players, what we expect out of them uh, across sports today, and it's really a lot different um, than what we've been used to. I know that the reason why, in my opinion, and if you can't admit this, once again, this is not a political stance. This is just, this is mere fact. In sports media, the media is so far left. It is so far liberal. And again, I'm not going down a political path here, but it is very, like, it's just the facts. Those are the views that they take. And for whatever reason, you know, shining a sensitive, being sensitive to all parties, that's just how it is. And I do know that it's really created this idea amongst the media, who is a conduit traditionally, a conduit between team and fans, it's really created this like storm of any time there's a dispute between a team and a player, you know, it's always the player got screwed and big bad NFL anti 
establishment, baby. Like, buck the trend, go player, get paid, do your thing. And, you know, sometimes the player is right to do that. And, and I have no problem. But we are at an all-time high here where it's just the player should never answer or never fall in line with anything. And that's just something I disagree with. And I, I disagree with Antonio Brown deciding to do his business through social media. Is it effective? Yeah, it's worked. It's worked. So I guess I can't really knock him for that. He controls his own desti- destiny, it looks like, because people will answer to that. But this is just the perfect example of the media and us as a society, how we view players. We relate to them more, so we support them almost by default. I don't agree with what Antonio Brown did, and I'm 25 years old. And I probably relate to him more than I do a front office executive who went to Brown or Yale or Harvard, has an Ivy League degree, or even an owner who whose daddy is old money oil from Dallas. Like, yeah, I probably should support Antonio Brown, right? Because I relate to him more. I once wanted to be a professional athlete, and he is a professional athlete. Most people don't grow up saying, I want to be a GM or I want to own a team because we understand how hard that is. We understand how hard it is to be a professional athlete too, but we understand it's more feasible. So we just have this inherent bias. We just have a whole premise of supporting players by default because we relate to them more. In the media, man, do they just, I mean, they embody it. I think I talked about it earlier. The media is younger than ever. It's bigger than ever, and it's a really cool thing. But we have more media members that are 30, 35 years of age who definitely come from the backgrounds, the life experiences, and are the same age of these athletes. So these media members that are interviewing them, communicating with them on a day-to-day basis, they're probably going to shine the light in the view of the player, right? I mean, the media, there are so, so many conflicts of interest from what I've learned and what I observe. But this is probably one of the bigger ones. The media members are always going, probably going to shine the light in favor of the player. So us as consumers from the media, we're probably going to tend to to take that view as well, not only because we have the same backgrounds of those media members, but that's how they're you know portraying it. That's how they're delivering the consumption that we seek from sports. I think this... Antonio Brown, Pittsburgh breakup really embodies that because I don't think Antonio acted in an appropriate manner. I think he could have gotten what he wanted without making basically a circus of it and acting more professional and maybe even getting it done in a timely manner because it's not done yet. Who knows? Maybe he remains on Pittsburgh because they don't seek a uh, return that is to their liking. But this really is just an embodiment of 2019, how people do business, pro player all the time, even by default, when the player's wrong, which I think he is here. That's the society we live in, kind of driven by the media. Antonio Brown, Pittsburgh breakup, embodies it all. Okay, guys, that's going to do it here for Episode 8, a shorter one, just about 30 minutes here today. I uh, Again, I got to go head down to Texas, got to pay my respects for a friend, but I'm also going to be going back to St. Louis for Mardi Gras. I know a lot of you probably are going to be enjoying that this weekend. Be smart. Be safe. Remember, things can get out of control fast, okay? If you're not careful, it's a 
It's something that begins in the morning. You could be, you know, you, you know, you could be tapping out by uh, two o'clock or so. So be very careful this weekend. Be safe. Enjoy. Have some fun. But before you do any of that, make sure you go to iTunes, subscribe, leave me a review. I want the harsh, most critical thing you got, if that's what you're thinking, or if you want to be nice and leave me something that you're enjoying, I'll pref- I'll like that too. But if not, uh, or if, above all else. Go to iTunes, subscribe, review, five stars. That would be awesome. Uh, and leave me some feedback. At Pete4C, that's on all social media, Snapchat, Instagram, Twitter. Let me know what you're thinking. Questions, comments, feedback. Slide up in those DMs. Have yourself a great weekend. Be safe. Be smart. We'll see you next week. <laughs>